Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest a musician, composer, engineer, producer, and just all-around music biz guy, Dean Hages. We'll be talking about his many musical adventures, and we'll get some insights into the Canadian music scene from someone who's been a part of it for many decades now. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Dean. How are you? Oh, it's my pleasure, Dan. I'm I'm uh, extremely honored to be uh, part of your your show today, and and uh, I'm very well. Well, it's good to have you on. I was uh, thinking about it. I was talking to somebody the other day, and uh, you know, there's there's lots of stars out there and people that you always see, but then right below that, there's this big wide swath of people who are not household names, but who make a good living in the music business and have been involved in an integral part of it for many decades. And I'd consider myself in that group, and I think you're in that group as well. Uh, I'm glad to be part of uh, a group at, at least. And, and, you know, the funny thing is that one of my nicknames that I uh, garnered throughout the years in, in the music industry was Turtle. And you happen to be, uh, you know, your last name being the hair. So, I mean, we've got go. a race going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There you go. So you're from Toronto. You're from the Toronto area. That's where you're born and raised. Yeah. Uh, specifically, uh, actually in the uh, Bell City, uh, which is uh, Brantford, Ontario. Right. Okay. And, uh, you know, uh, where uh, Wayne Gretzky hails from and a few yes. others, uh, a few people we like to say there's uh, there must be something in the water there. Uh, yeah. the, the electron microscope was uh, created there. And, uh, you yeah. know, there's a lot of great people that, that have come from the area. And specifically, nice. uh, more specific, from a, a tobacco farm uh, as a child that was uh, handed down uh, from our, our, our great-grandparents. Oh, came wow. over from Scotland uh, in, the, in the 1800s, late 1800s. And I, I was born in Guelph, so my family, oh. my, my my great-grandparents, well, my great-grandfather came from England, and he ended up in Brighton, and then they ended up in Guelph, or, well, Toronto, then Guelph, so. Brighton Rock. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I had I had them on the podcast, too, so. Oh, nice. Yeah. I had a, a, a very adventurous kind of um, upbringing. Uh, yeah. We were uh, very fortunate to have had parents that um, had friends down in the Caribbean and invited them down for a wedding in the 60s. And uh, they liked it so much. Uh, they didn't quite buy the island, but they, you know, started to purchase, you know, a property down there. And, and uh, the more time we spent down there, I used to carry a chair for myself and my, my uh, sister up to the, the side of the stage. And, uh, you know, there I was watching. I don't know if you know any of the bands there, but there's Ivory uh, that used to play down there and um, Spice and Co. with friends of mine like Smasher, Michael Cadigan. Wow. And um, that was really where I, I realized that was uh, where the seed of music was birthed in me. The, not just the music, but the performance and the connection of both the stage, you know, presentation and, uh, you know, being an entertainer. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's kind of a cool story. And then, so did you have formal training or like you play everything, right? I, the one thing on here I see that like you're one of those guys that just tries everything and, you know, you play it all and, and do it well. I do. I, I even have been known to play uh, on lead spoons before and tambourine. <laughs> there you, know? you go. That's <laughs> always important. Right. But yeah, I mean, any, anything that I could climb onto basically or hold in my hands, you know, I was, I was able to, you know, um, pull tone out of it and rhythm and i think you know eventually when i did go um to university in london england um my favorite class there was was really a, a rhythm uh ear training course mm -hmm. and uh, our teacher the professor told us to uh, stand up come in a circle and leave our egos in the chair right interesting 
Yeah, and, yeah. and he gave us a clock <laughs> where he would uh, point out 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and he had different time phrases that were written at each of those points. So no matter the tempo that we were given, we had to clap out, and he would point to us and give us, you know, 1 o'clock. Two o'clock, nine o'clock, oh, neat. ten o'clock, huh. and I realized that it doesn't matter what instrument you're playing, whether it's the spoons right up to piano or everything. Everything has a percussive element in it, and absolutely, I, you know, yeah. I find that a lot of uh, creators will um, try to wow us with, uh, you know, as much knowledge as they have. So, you know, filling in with a lot of notes. Whereas some of my favorite musicians really leave what I call cliffhangers, you know, just notes that draw you in to the song because the song is actually more important than my capability of playing everything I know and showing off. Right. Yeah, no, it's a great point because some guys just, they just plow up and down the scales and then they plow up and down the scales faster and they think that's better. And it's like, yeah, okay. And your (laughs) overriding point is a great one because musicians just have that music in them and they can make i mean we we understand that you're trying to breathe musical life into inanimate objects because that's basically what we do so it doesn't matter mm-hmm. you could have a knife and a fork or a piano or whatever. you just find the music in it and you bring it out so that's right. a great skill that's i love it which which is actually a great <clears throat> moment to segue into the uh ai where we're at currently because because um, my uh, argument with the eu with regarding the ai act that, that they've been uh working their way through is exactly that, that, I mean, uh, I mean, they've been selling us the recording button for over a hundred years now, but a lot of like the drum machines, you know, from the boss, you know, Dr. Rhythm and right up to the Lynn drum machines and whatnot are just a machine. They sit there in the corner of the studio. Yes, they have power on them, but unless we go over to them, turn them on and actually program them and whatnot and work with them, you know, they're just a machine. So yeah. the way I describe AI now is that it's like a thousand machines within, and but it does not do anything on its own until we go and actually prompt it. And with the more the pro level AI, um, we get to, I don't know if you've worked with it, but I, I wanted to learn about it. So I, I've gone on and been uh, made myself a member of a variety of them to test them out and where you can actually select which instrumentations that you want and to what degree and what level and, you know, what styles and whatnot. And then you can, you know, limit it down. So all my favorite bands, I don't know about you, but all of them are, are minimalistic, you know, you know, from, right. from Rush and ZZ Top and whatnot. A lot of them are just like a three piece. So yeah. you don't have a lot of musicianship going on. You have space in between the music. Again, not filling up all those holes, you know, so yeah. I put I pushed AI into the wee hours of the morning and discovered that um, as it could not render anymore because it was getting tired, like it's like a child, um, mm-hmm. it would tell me, oh, you can't do any more renders. I can't, I can't do any more. I said, well, do one more. You know, yeah. 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the morning rolls around and it's pushing out the most bizarre music I've ever heard. But it's because I limited it, because I pushed it, you know, to hmm. that max, like we would as a producer – yeah. I find myself doing with a lot of artists. So right. that's my well, take I was on gonna that. Ask you about, I was going to ask you about AI because, um, well, we'll get into the songwriting and stuff too, but, but the thing with AI is that, um, to me, the, the problem I see is that the consumer is really what matters. And if they hear something and you say, well, that was generated by AI, they're not really going to care. 
right? Because uh, the consumer likes what they like. You know, if they, if they eat a piece of cake and they like the cake, they don't really care that much who made it or if a robot made it or a human being made it. They just like the cake. It tastes good and yeah, it's good cake. So that's part of the problem I see. And then also people who have no musical talent will be able to sort of crank out stuff and they don't even have to sing well. And the mix parameters can be, you can borrow the mix parameters from Steely Dan Can't Buy a Thrill or something and just make your album sound similar to that. What do you think about that? I, I agree uh, to a, a great uh, portion of what you're saying. I mean, they even have a McDonald's that's open now that has no staff in it at all. It's right. a completely yeah, you robots, you, you know. Yeah. Um, but my point there was that, well, at least you haven't got anyone, you know, doing anything they shouldn't be doing in your food. Right. You know, you haven't got the liabilities and you haven't, you know, you haven't got, uh, yeah. I mean, those people, those uh, robots can uh, clean and paint and, you know, uh, you're not yeah. paying for, for the liabilities and, and CCP contributions and all kinds of things. Right. Um, but as far as um, what we like, yeah, uh, if you like it, you, you do like it. If you don't, you don't. You, you do consume it, you don't consume it. Um, I think the AI is only as good as what we're training it to do and uh, your point being okay. uh, finally with re with regards to talentless or, or whatnot i don't know if you know this but michael jackson did not play an instrument right yeah not a specific instrument but mm -hmm. whenever he stepped into a room everybody was intimidated because the one instrument he had from his soul was his body and his hands and and his mm -hmm. his mouth and he yeah. was able whenever he worked with greats like stevie wonder lionel richer whoever he was working with his tonality, his his rhythm came from deep within his soul and came out of his what he did have, which was the yeah. instruments of his body. So if we look at, for instance, the music styles of, of rap, for instance, I, I usually call a lot of the producers in that. They're, they're loop managers. They're grabbing a loop of has been made by somebody else, which is which has been machined and crafted yeah. into to loops and a, and a library of them, and they drag those over, you know, into a cutter window on a DAW a digital audio workstation, for those of you who don't know that term. Yeah. And uh, then they have a vocalist who comes in who may or may not be, you know, specifically instrument trained, but that didn't stop Biggie, you know, from making his splash in the world or any of the great rap artists, you know, yeah, who have made sure. a, a huge impact on the music industry and, and finally now uh, recognized at the Grammys this year yeah. that they did not attend to because they're like yeah, 45 years in and uh, now you're inviting us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's a good point, right? People just make, but I, that stuff, I don't know where you're at with it, but a lot of that stuff is pablum. You know, it's, it's, it's generated in a box. It's over a loop. It's over a drum machine talking some mindless keyboard pattern. And it really doesn't touch my soul. It doesn't do much for me. That's uh, my take on it. I, I guess it, I guess it, it's where you come from in the, the soul of music because if you uh, give it a chance, um, which I have on a great level, I know some of it can be quite toxic, you know, uh, where it's come from. But a lot of people who are coming out with rap, you know, on the street have gone through, you know, a very harsh, hard um, bottom of the, you know, the opposite end of the scale of you know, society and, and uh, opportunities. Fathers are gone and, and you're taken yeah. by society and put into jail and, and whatnot. And at the end of the day, it's it's the message that's coming from them and the experience that they have that they relate to the people who are consuming right. it, yeah. you know. Okay, um, yeah. 
it's Fair not point. all my yeah. test. It's not all for my taste, but I'll tell you, run DMC and and when they joined up with Aerosmith, you know, walk walk this way and whatnot. Uh, you know, I loved that when that that came out. I, so yeah, there's, it was cool, for me. Yeah. It's a selective kind of of thing. You know, it's not all for not all styles of music for for all people, but certainly um. There's no shortage of of uh, diamonds and gold on them, is there? <laughs> yeah. Well, no fair point because uh, you know uh, there's always the cream that rises to the top, and you think, well, that's pretty cool, you know, like Funky Cold Medina when that came out. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm I'm talking about the sort of um, people with no sort of musical talent or even even sensibility, just with a keyboard and a drum machine, putting out kind of stuff that's just kind of mindless fodder it's not really music to me I mean, you listen to kansas and sticks and van halen oh, and the bands oh, right. that really you know i mean well you know that's what i i'm old school so that's my thing right but well, uh, okay so i would compare that in the in the in the cooking world like from you know somebody who's in the pits the jerk pit you know that everybody likes to go to kind of thing and eat that that down-to-earth food or you can go to you know, uh, the Scatamouche, you know, in Toronto <laughs> and, and eat like the best French cuisine, you know, so I go, agree yeah. on that. Yeah. So can't like, they, I mean, back then they, they had a vocal arrangements. Like, you know, it's, if there was five guys in the band, five of them were singing. Unbelievable. You know? Just so good. Yeah. Just, yeah. And bands yeah. like the Commodores, like how do you, how do you get oh, over, you know, gorgeous. the rhythms and structure yeah. and, and whatnot? Like they were just, yeah. I would call them naturalists. Like not only they were born, um, with a desire to learn and, and to play an instrument, but they have like this soul connection yeah. to the instrument and to the, the music that they're presenting, you know, and performing. So uh, why yeah. are these guys, you know, able to connect to a funk soul breakdown more so than, you know, and, and reggae artists, like if you break down reggae, oh, yeah. all the parts that right. they're playing are incredibly simple, but when you put it all together, you know, I defy a lot of creators to actually put a band together and play authentic reggae. It ain't yeah, easy. Yeah, so good point. And so so your thought on it would be that AI is never going to replace the human soul in a way that would ever be, you know, overtake the human soul, I guess. Is that fair? I'm not sure if I would, I would look into the future and say it will never. But I think as a parent, because the, the way AI is, is has been brought in and released to society is that we are actually training them. So rather than just leaving UMG, uh, Universal Music Group, Sony, Warner and whatnot, because they've been doing it for years. We've just been told about it now. It, it would have been okay. machine learning before. Yep. It's now been labeled AI, right? I see. So, okay. Right. Enough, so yeah. now that AI has been labeled that, it was, it was, I took it as my opportunity to be part of the, the teaching process of the AI to give it soul. So okay. I pushed it into its uncomfortability. Will it ever replace? I don't know if it will go that far. I mean, I don't want to be right or wrong in, in that, to be honest okay. with you. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. You know, but yeah. um, do I enjoy it? I'd love to share some. I will share some with you uh, as I complete uh, the, the, the projects that I'm working yeah. on. But, I mean, they I don't conform, uh, as you can probably in a lot of ways to, to society anyways in the music industry and whatnot. I, right. I tried to go okay. outside of um, what would be considered the norm yeah no uh, with I'm music with and, you on that yeah yeah and I don't like to just conform and say okay I am a I am a this I am a country artist I am a this right. I am a that artist you know I yeah. I sit I sit down I'm I'm inspired and and when I'm inspired I, I like to go with it and right right yeah. to completion. 
Yeah, no, that's cool. And you've come up with some cool stuff. So I want to ask you about a little bit of that. So, so Thank back you. at the beginning, you, you, you're basically a young guy. You started playing professionally, I guess at 18, right. And, and Mm-mm. performing with my yeah. first, um, professional band. I was uh, 13 years old. Oh, I played nice. with, uh, the, the Pleasant Ridge bluegrass boys with Kevin Muir. Uh, he actually ended up out your way. He played for the BC uh, orchestra out there oh, on okay. bass. And Nathan Dennis and Chris Vandertuen ended up down in um, Nashville at the Grand Old Opry. He makes uh, nice. acoustic guitars. So we were yeah. doing commercials back then and playing at, you know, uh, events where we were getting paid at, at that age. So Very that cool. was my first uh, professional yeah. introduction to the music industry. But go ahead. yeah. Uh, well, I just I was going to ask you about Carl Dixon or Coney Hatch. And, and you got into, you obviously got immersed in the Toronto music scene and you got to rub shoulders with all those guys. I did so, yeah. Um, that was uh, after a, a lot of different stints with a, a few bands locally, and then I, I answered into a um, an ad that was uh, placed in in the, the Toronto Star, and uh, it turned out that it was um, at the time Carl's uh, Carl Dixon from Coney Hatch, his, his wife Stella, and uh, she was putting a band together. So we ended up at the time uh, rehearsing at, at what was called Badly Bent Studios. Okay. Uh, in Toronto. Yeah. And that's where uh, Kim Mitchell uh, was rehearsing mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, Honeymoon Suite was there. The Northern Pikes, uh, Jeff Healy, uh, Tom Cochran. You yes. know, I got to meet all these top creators, all because he had a 16 track uh, studio where they could, uh, while they were rehearsing, you know, test out things as well there. Nice. So yeah. we had the. Uh, advantage and opportunity of not only working with Carl because you know he's an incredible musician and vocalist, but he mm-hmm. guided uh, the band that I was working with as well in in all aspects, you know, A to Z. And um, eventually, we were invited to on stage with him and Andy Kern and Steve Shelsky. Oh, and nice, you know, what an amazing opportunity that was. Well, yeah, especially, I mean, you're probably like a thousand other kids. Right? You got stars in your eyes. You want to be a rock and roll star. And, and oh, yeah. that I always, I always ask people like, did you have a defining moment or how much of what you did was planned or how much was just an accident, like sort of happenstance? I would say all of it was accidental, but it was because of my, my willingness, you know, to, like right. you, you literally have to put yourself in the position of opportunity. The, the opportunity knocks, um, but opportunity also knocks because you've, you've, you've put yourself in that place. Like, you know, you're at the crossroads, you're, you're at the events. Um, I went to the studios. I made myself known with George Rendina, you know, at number nine studios and Jim Zollis yeah. at uh, now the, the Rose room. And yeah. You know, just kept it's uh, to me. It was networking, and I think that's been, um, you know, the basis of, of of making that cake, as you were describing, just starting from the foundation, was just letting people know that I was available. And you know, you had to be willing to go get the coffee and get the pizza, and oh yeah, and yeah. suddenly you find that there's an opportunity, and if you're ready, you're up, kid. Yeah, no, it's a good point because you make your own opportunity. Like my old manager always said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And that was his, that was his <laughs> well saying, done. you know, yes, and I thought well that's done. totally right. You know, like, so when you, when you started out, what was your goal? Like if you, if you just said back down and I want to be fill in the blank, what was it that you wanted to be? Oh, I wrote do? a song about that. Well, what would you be if you wanted to be a bee, a yeah. bee, a bee, a bee? <laughs> uh, for the children because i mean all things is music to me um i i my parents asked me i'll give you the honest answer at that same age of 13 they asked me what i wanted to be in life and uh, i said a professional musician and i watched 
both of my professional uh, government uh, working parents uh, at the top of their industries, uh, their jaws hit the floor. Yeah, and they wanted anything <laughs> but that. And I think part of part of what spurred me on was the resistance of my parents and the resistance oh. of people. So I literally wanted to take that statement of "grow your hair" and you know join a <laughs> band, and that's literally what what happened. And and you know it was every every time I I stepped out every, every day, every moment in the industry has taught me. You know, so I you know all the way up to where I am uh, with administration and law yeah. in copyright and publishing, you know, it, it, it was steps in front of each other yeah. that led me to, um, you know, always pushing the boundary. I, I, I don't like to feel comfortable and laying on my back and, you know, just going down the river with the lazies, right. you know, I, I really like to discover. So I honestly, I'm about 18 hours a day in the yeah. industry. I work tirelessly, uh, you know, still performing. Well, good writing a lot, uh, yeah. publishing, and uh, at the end of the day, um, I, once I learned about the music industry and how it can be perilsome, you know, yeah. um, was I, may, I wanted to make a choice at that point. Was I going to help creators and artists or was I going to hurt them? And right. uh, I've tried my best to help people, quite honestly, all the way along the way. Have I made some mistakes? Yes, I have, but I would attribute yeah. those also to the learning process. Yeah, well, fair enough, and and sounds like you kind of forged your own path too. I've I've sort of been a, you know, I haven't been a conformist, I guess is the word I would use, but it, you just try to find your own way in the biz. And I think the funny thing is, when you're a kid and you grow long hair and you want to be a musician, sometimes that's <laughs> looked on disparagingly. But the thing is, there's there's a spark and and a, an energy there that really is a positive attribute that that gets sort of overlooked until you prove it. I still say that I'm, you know. When you've arrived and you've got the Grammy in your hand and you've got the Juno in your hand and you've got a shelf full of them, have you arrived? No. Right. I don't want to arrive at success. You know, I want to keep growing and pushing the parameters of myself. And, and the success is that realizing, you know, I don't know everything. And right. do yeah. I still have that hunger and zest for the knowledge and for in creativity? And I think, uh, you know, next year I turn sixty years old, and I I don't I don't identify with it. I feel like I'm right. still happy <laughs> to get up and and challenge myself and play music. You know, what are we yeah, doing I'm right, today? I'm right you know? with you, brother. That's exactly it. And, <laughs> and, and I often say, like, it's a journey, not a destination. Amen. Right? And enjoy the journey because it's not a destination, and and that's the way I look at it. So uh, yeah, I, when I hear people retiring. How, how can you retire from this? Okay, I sell. I, I worked hard all my life. I sold my catalog. Now I'm going to float. You know, yeah, I, I no. don't want to do that. Yeah. So I'm actually. I've had some issue in the in the industry, and I actually thank creation, uh, to be honest with you, for not giving me the big payola and opportunity. Because I, I wonder if I had gotten the actual large payout at uh, an earlier age. I would right. not have become who I am if I had gotten that. I would have rested on those laurels. And people would have, you know, oh, here comes this and here comes, you know what I mean? Walking yeah. into the room and, oh, he's going to do this for you. He's going to do that for you. Yeah. I'm I'm actually grateful that it didn't do that for me. I'm grateful to creation, you know, for not awarding me everything I wanted because I think it would have made me lazy. Well, perhaps, and, and I've often said that, you know, I've, I've been able to make a living and fortunate to make a living for 40 years in the music business. And people ask me sometimes, you know, what, what, what advice would you give? And, and I, it's just two words and it's stay hungry, 
stay hungry. Exactly. If you're not hungry, you're, you're competing against somebody who is. And if you're not hungry, you're not passionate. I mean, we, we did this when we were kids and we had stars in our eyes and you get your guitar and you're playing with your buddies in a band. That was the coolest thing in the world. And it, and it still is cool. And I love it. I remember sitting down at the piano and, um, Usually the guys in the school or wherever I was, they'd be, you know, hanging back, you know, if they didn't play an instrument, arms crossed and judgmental. But I was usually yeah, right. flanked where by a very beautiful blonde or a very beautiful redhead or whatever on either side of me. And I was like, wow, this is really great. I get to play music and, you know, wonderful people are attracted to me and other guys are going to be hating and jealous. Yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> So I have to ask you about the genres, because again, you know, the time that we came up, you know, there was, it was all over the place. I often say, you know, we listened to James Taylor, we listened to Led Zeppelin, we listened to Def Leppard in Kansas and, and all the, the bands and, and the, lots of different influences. And then we went through all the seventies the and the disco and the new wave and the punk, and we listened to all that. So how did you sort all the genres out and where did you land? Interesting question. Um, I think I'd be like a, a cheese grater over top of a tossed salad to be answering <laughs> that. <You know. laughs> just add some seasoning. It was truly, it's it's a melting pot of it all. Because yeah. um, as as a producer as well, engineer, you know, I did my best to facilitate. You know, if, if someone came through the door and wanted me to to help them uh, actualize their vision. You know, I I didn't find myself saying no to anyone. I there was only one genre that I had a difficult time with, and uh, it was just very hard for me. And it was just you know very you know death metal. I was just I just I couldn't tell the difference between yeah. the intro, the verse, the chorus, and and it was hard to get the the you know what was the meaning of the you know the no, storyline. I'm with you. I, I, I didn't get. I couldn't relate to it, and I I said I'm not the guy. I don't get it. I'm sorry. It just doesn't resonate with me. But outside yeah. of that, uh, I've produced, you know, 73-piece orchestras, 32-piece uh, jazz bands, wow. uh, down to, uh, all the way to country, uh, to punk, you know. Um, the Goalies, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Goalies. Um, nope. I did an album with them with Russ Wilson from Junkhouse, the bass player. Nice. And, yeah, fabulous punk band back in the day. And I ended up, uh, as a result, because the drummer left the band uh, the day before they had a big event, he was in law. Um, uh, a band that was coming out from BC. Do you remember Gob? Yeah, I do. Yeah, because my friend uh, was—I think he did sound for them. So, uh, yeah. So they were playing uh, here at the Corktown in in Hamilton, and their drum, their drummer left the day before the gig because oh, wow. he was going to be hobnobbing with some lawyers and wanted to, you know, opportunity oh. was knocking for him. So yeah. they asked me to fill because I'd produced the album. I heard, you know, everything for, you know, I don't know how many times we right, listened yeah. to the song, 150,000 <laughs> times. Inside the, the tracks, as they say. Right? <laughs> so, I, but the one thing I remember about that gig, you know, back then trusses had like 5,000 watt lights on. Oh, yeah. We called them cans, you know. Yeah, and, and we, you know, we were all uh, sponsored by, uh, you know, Ernie Ball and, and Picks and whatnot. But we also had Clairol, you know. We, we yeah. back combed the hair and on came the hairspray. And I remember opening up for them when those lights came on and the yellows hit either side of my head. I could, I could smell my hair I know, smoking. It's, yeah, that's totally right. The 1,000 watt pars were like an oven basically on your yeah, head right I know. Exactly, I know. I, exactly i stood under many of those so uh, yeah 
growing up in in the country and in Barbados, uh, fortunately, as I said, so I was I was exposed to right. uh, calypso and soca yes. and reggae at a very young age, and also coming back to Canada in in the bluegrass and uh, in the country, and then living in in uh, England when I went to university there, I, I was at uh, Battery Studios, Mutt Lang's place, and yeah. I ended up being the head engineer at Acorn. Um, where Ginger Baker and Eric Clapton came out of with Cream. Oh, very cool. Right? And yeah. um, working with so many talented people. I mean, I'm still friends with Kofi, Ginger Baker's son, and, yeah. you know, uh, the players there just in, in England. Like, you can't yeah. believe how much actual soul. Um, like, Motown is England, if you ask me. Detroit is England, you know. Oh, yeah. So much vibe there. Really, yeah. so many great, great, great players. So hmm. um, I'm just very uh, blessed to have been thrown into the mix of it all. Uh, and yeah. uh, I, I don't well, find myself biased or prejudiced to any of it. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. And, and it's a good point because uh, you really have to be broad. But we're, we were brought up that way we, to have broad tastes and, and, and float through musical genres and influences and, and, and not always mainstream, but then you, you did lots of playing, but then I was going to ask about that. You made a transition at some point from a performer and songwriter to an engineer and producer. And is that why you went to England to, to go to, uh, to recording school? I, I, I actually school? didn't go to recording school. I didn't. Uh, okay. I would say everything has been recording school for me. Cause I mean, right. I, I put uh, some students into the, uh, the um, CPI, uh, or not CPI, um, MIA rather, in London, yeah. um, who laid claim to the recordings that I had done. Okay. <laughs> I won't mention who they are. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm back on, on Fostex 4 track, you know, and, and Jack Richardson said, well, this is a great yeah. eight track recording, you know, yeah. uh, that I had done. Um, so every time, because we didn't have education back then, really for for ourselves in that. Yeah, that's right. You got a job at I, a studio, and you learned on the job. Is basically do, the way. can you make coffee? Yeah. <laughs> that's the first. <laughs> Are you willing to wash washroom floors? Well, you know? I just did a, I just did an album with Mike Fraser, and he started at uh, Little Mountain. And then they said, we don't need an engineer. We need a janitor. So he started as a janitor and became, he mixed love on an elevator by Aerosmith eventually. See, you see, <laughs> you see, and that's, that's the thing. And, and whenever I hired that. someone to, as an assistant, I would ask them, are you willing to wash, uh, washroom floors? Yeah. And, and if they said no, and I said, well, if you're not willing to do that, what else are you not willing to do? Yeah. You know, so, um, all of it was uh, educational. Um, you know, when I walked into battery studios and metalworks one and they've got consoles that you know are 30 feet long ssls <laughs> you know and whatnot yeah. and uh, just you know our, the plugins were all you know rack mounts and whatnot it's it's awe-inspiring to go in there and and hear and watch the the, the totality of it come out so uh, being you know at battery where def leopard like you mentioned where was yeah. uh, they were produced the the hysteria album i mean who am i i'm there with marco seri Frintz. You know the programming director there, and we're working on. I don't know if you know the uh, the com the computer systems they had back then, but they were, you know, like a hundred and twenty thousand each, and they had eight of them. You know, oh, crazy, the, crazy the, the money. Studio, yeah. You know, yeah. and here we were being able to play with them, and they were just incredible. You know, so advanced. So all of it has been the education. I actually worked for Mutt Lang. Uh, in London, uh, in Portobello, at his uh, London uh, Sound Center. He had two stores. Uh, one okay. was London Sound uh, Hire, which, so he would swap out any of the gear that he was taking out from his studio at Battery 
and and uh, hire it out, lend it out, you know, for a rate. And okay. also he was bringing in like brand new equipment and he would swap it out and all the time and sell it at London Sound Center. So I was working with um, the guitarist from Grace Jones and drummers, yeah. you know, who had worked with Phil Collins and um, uh, Stuart Copeland and whatnot. like you're just surrounded by uh, just these incredible people. I actually got kicked out one night on a rainy night after a Wimbledon, a ten, um, uh, not tennis match. It was at Wimbledon, but it was uh, Tears for Fears were playing. And that yeah. guitarist kicked me out because when he was gone, I recorded a four-track recording uh, while he was gone there. And he came back with his girlfriend, and I played it for him. And he was adamant that there was no bloody way that I had recorded that song on his equipment and in the middle of the night after he came back with his girlfriend from being at the Tears for Fears concert, kicked, there I was with my suitcase out on the road because <laughs> I wrote a song and recorded it, okay? That's one for well, the book. Well, how did, you, how did you get into that? Like, what did you just one day decide, to? I'm going to England, I'm going to get into the recording scene over there? What, how was that all set up? Um, I uh, had the fortune, again, of uh, being in, in the Caribbean uh, uh, with my parents, and um, I met this lovely uh, British woman at the time, um, who we, we had this uh, three-week uh, romance. I was in a band in Canada at the time, and um, I came back and said, guys, I've, I've met the love of my life <laughs> at that point, and yeah. I'm off to England. Okay. And, uh, that was it, and while there, you know, it's, it's it's the scene if you're in music. What year would that have been? Uh, that was around uh, 89, 90. Yeah, early 90s, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because when, when I took a hiatus from there at university uh, and working there, I got a call to go to Hollywood and work on an album right. there. And I, and, you know, I went down and ended up staying almost five years right up to uh you know just after the 93 94 when um the riots happened i was doing right. an album at boulevard studios oh wow and so so then yeah so tell me about that so you ended up going to la and then i i see here you worked with lemmy Kilmister. yeah i did and how was that how was that how was it how can, how, what, what can you imagine didn't happen with this fellow okay well so so let me ask you because uh, i'm always curious about that like he had this sort of cult devoted cult following and he just was purported to be the coolest guy in the world now of course i never met him but i you know yes. he always seemed kind of he was in motorhead and he was kind of a drinking smoking swearing kind of a rough guy but people really held him in high regard why is that i think because um, much like ginger baker they knew where to draw the line um, and okay. that's what they've, they've taught me. You have to know where to draw the line within people who will take advantage of you because they'll take advantage of you no matter what, if you let them. And these guys had, they had those two faces, you know, those two abilities where the, you know, you knew you were going to get corked in the face by Ginger Baker if you crossed the line. Yep. And I think they carry themselves that, that way, you know, and, and it's quite off putting for some people for good reason. Um, yep. but yet at the same time. Lemmy was known also with the, the ladies. There wasn't a lady in, in, in the rainbow room that didn't want to sit at the table and party with him. He was that guy that people wanted to be around. And uh, so much so yeah. when, when we were in the studio, I, it was actually at Boulevard Studios, which uh, was uh, Fred Astaire's dance studio hmm. originally. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, where I recorded, they converted that and brought in a 1073, a Neve console, a vintage one there. And again, you know, I'm waiting for everyone. We we actually had, um, for that album, we had Chick Corea, uh, his son, uh, Thadia, 
playing oh. drums for us. Very um, cool. Yeah, it was, it was it was an incredible time. But you know, we spent three weeks on the drums. You know, back then we had budgets for um, tuning a <laughs> snare for a week. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't have the samplers. Yeah, that's right. You gotta you gotta create the sound. But just to put a button on the the Lemmy thing, I guess he just had that yes. magnetic person had that magnetic personality that people just were drawn to. Because I've never quite got it myself, but I I, I can see what you're saying is uh, you know he was so. he was larger than life. Like he <laughs> yeah. just yeah. He, his aura was like he walked in and he, he was like like don't f with me, yeah. and I'll be your best mate, mate. Yeah. If you got, if you go. got a ciggy, give us a ciggy. You know, and you've got a lie. Um, so you're down in LA, you're working at a major studio, you got major mm-hmm. people coming in and out and uh, mm-hmm. writing and recording. And mm-hmm. so what was that? Like, were you, were you feeling like that was the, the highlight of your career and you were just, uh, you rocking it in LA? What did that feel like? Yes. And, and the bizarre thing is like, we didn't have uh, cell phones back then. So we didn't, you know, right. we weren't constantly recording ourselves and posting it on social media none of that yes, stuff existed yeah. so i don't know if you know jeff salem drummer don't know he was he was down there with us in, in part of the sessions as well and he came down so you know we had the stories to go with it and if anyone wants to you know contradict the stories well then they'd have to counter uh, you know um suggest it otherwise but we didn't have the photos to you know to prove that this is what yeah. we did but i have the product you know, yeah, the, uh, yeah, that's a good point too. Cause we didn't take a lot of pictures and videos, but even Mike Fraser said that about little mountain. He said, we were busy, we were working. We, nobody was snapping pictures all the time. Right. We have hardly any. Right. Exactly. You know, I, I worked with Alan Blazik. Alan Blazik did the hotel California album, the engineering. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So when we're tracking and we're on two inch tape back then where you can get maybe two and a half songs, three, if you're, they're shorter songs on yeah. at 30 inches per second, yeah. you know, and he's doing editing with a razor and whatnot. And I'm watching this guy, you know, zeroing in and back and forth on, over the heads, you know, the, uh, nice. of the tape machine and finding his cut point slices it and then finds his exit and it slices it. And on wow. another piece of tape Crazy. goes around his neck and some of them yeah. are going to the floor and some of them are throwing up in the ceiling and somewhere on the board. And then he takes these things back. He, he puts a tape on and he, he numbers it and whatnot and tells what it is. And he's gluing all that stuff back together. I swear that's to crazy. God, he, when he played it, they were seamless. Yeah, you know, that's crazy. eh? So wow. th- like watching a master of that yeah. nature was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, he's that's passed it. away, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But to tell you the, the, the moments, the, the culmination of the moments Man, there's so many of them. Like, I, I got to work with Fritz McIntyre uh, from Simply Red, producing yeah. an album. Nice. Well, how can you compare, you know, what's going on around you in, in, in the world when you're working with people who have changed? You know, if you yeah. don't know me by now, yeah. you know, here's no, the keyboardist yeah. from this yeah. working yeah. beside me, and I'm I'm producing him, and, and the, the the drummer just arrived from Germany, and and we're tracking, yeah. and we're you lose track of time speaking of tracking yes well there you go but the, also those experiences give you a great foundation I, it's funny a wise professor once said uh, you know everything i've done in my life all my experiences everything i've learned have brought me to the moment i am at right now and i bring all of that to bear and i thought couldn't agree more a, couldn't agree more profound it, thing right it, it truly is um and and that willingness you know like um there's a movie by uh, jim carrey the the yes man um, dangerously, you know, I think you can say yes to the wrong things as well, because 
the industry and all of its, um, you know, allure to it that goes with it has a lot of perils and pitfalls in it surrounding yeah. it. And I managed, you know, mostly to say no to a lot of it. Uh, and I think that's part of what separated me as well, because I wasn't willing to go to the extent of, you know, being so hungover and throwing TVs out of the windows and whatnot. Yeah. You know, I, I had yeah. my own moral conduct on the road, yeah. you know, and, and, and it's kind of what, I mean, when I ended up meeting uh, Bill Ballard, uh, owner of CPI and uh, the Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, he enjoyed the conversation with me so much. I ended up at his house for Christmas. Oh, nice. And on who was there? Uh, John McDermott. Yeah. And I got to perform with John McDermott there. The, Fam- I don't know if you know famous the, the tenor Irish vocalist. Tenor, right? Yep. Yep, tenor vocalist. And I mean, his first track that they released was Danny Boy, you know, which was a yep. remake, of course. 100%. But uh, then I, I ended up um, going to uh, Bill Ballard's other cottage that he was building that had all these, uh, unfortunately, redwoods from your neck of the, the woods, as it yep. were, being <laughs> shipped in so he could have a 24-seat movie theater in his cabin but yep. the, the silver dollar the snowflakes were falling on it and there i was tracking with john mcdermott uh, uh, yeah. yeah so it again i'm not the yes man but i certainly recognize when an opportunity is there staring you at the face and if you don't you know recognize it and you don't say yes and you don't follow through i think that's what adds if if you had any regrets at all you know that would be it just saying no to, to the right things right yeah. As much as you have to yeah. say no to the wrong things. Yeah, you have to be discerning, but also like your your previous point, you know, you gotta you gotta get out there and mix it up. You gotta, you know, put yourself in the situations where you create your own opportunity and then step up when that opportunity presents itself. And it sounds like that's what you've done. And and you know, if I look at my my mentors and not even just in the music industry, but like Michael Jordan, for instance, it's it's been said, you know, that when he went on the court from from when he was you know first signed in, in college. Uh, ball and went up to the pro level he played every game as though it was the the last game like a you know, playoff the, game the, yeah. the, the define yeah. the playoff game that's yeah. right and I, I think that's me i like i give it i give her i give yep. it all no matter what it is i'm doing you know tirelessly endlessly driven um and and i try to be um you know always positive and helpful with people mostly in the industry yeah, I say mostly um, because there are the, the, the institutional side and the record label side also that I, I've been offered record labels, to be honest with you, um, yeah. several times. Um, right. But when I read the fine print of it and I asked other people how it was going for them since they signed, you know, th- there was the facade of success. They would, right. they would show up at the Junos and whatnot and, um, They'd be driven there in a limousine, and after the party, and after the hoopla, and whatnot. And there's the Juno. They would go back to this, you know, single bedroom apartment, you know, and it, the the facade of it didn't add up to the reality. Well, that's that's a great point because I've had lots of friends who were in that recording world, and uh, you know, there was just a lot of a lot of glitz and glam, but uh, the reality was not that at all. And then once you're signed to a record company, you're kind of a company man, and when you try to, to step out of that, you can't because that becomes, you know, your, your entry to the business, I guess, becomes the cage that you're in now. Right. Well, they um, put clauses like for instance, options and, and options are definitively additional albums. So once you sign and there's additional options, two, three options, 
and you have to use their team. You have to use their studio. You have to use their producers. You have to use their engineers. Yeah. You have to use their lawyer team. You have to use their art department. You have to use everybody. And by the time you've used everybody that they offer, you owe forever. So you're never outside of that. They're basically a bank in the yeah. in the industry the big three and 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 outside on the fourth you know with bmg who um recently left uh, canada right. for obvious reasons <laughs> yeah. um the 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 record companies are feeling the pinch of yeah. what's going on in their own behaviors um you know uh yeah quite honestly i believe we're at around 14 million songs a year being released and yeah, crazy um you know, yeah. with uh, UMG uh, owning 61% and, and Sony and Warner owning the, the additional with uh, the fact that BMG just merged uh, again back with Universal. Yeah, so um, they're controlling their margin, most of the catalogs, right? Well, they're controlling the catalogs, the vintage catalogs, but it's very hard for them to keep up with, with the motion forward of the amount of music that's coming out right. by the okay. DIYs. Yeah. So recently, uh, just uh, on February 1st, uh, UMG Universal Music Group just uh, pulled out its entire catalog from TikTok. For what I've been fighting for for years is is the reality that we're, they're not making... Uh, funny, if you took TikTok out of their, their public letter that they released yeah. February 1st and replaced it with some of the uh, other organizations in Canada, the PROs that exist, because there's only yeah. 39 of them. But if you yeah. replaced uh, the PRO of Canada... In, with TikTok and use that same talk off, uh, I think you'd find um, the reality is is that administrators and, and uh, nonprofits, as they're defined, um, are actually have very d deep um, pockets for themselves. And mm, to, uh, yeah. case in point, uh, point in case, um, a track of mine um, that I did uh, that had almost three million radio plays uh, in totality, I got a check for sixty four dollars. Right. And you sit and you sit there with and you think of all the time and energy and devotion, uh, you know, that you've put into this industry. And, you know, uh, Eddie Schwartz, I believe you've had on the, the, the show. I have, and yeah. I know I, yeah. I know a part of his talk off is the pizza talk. You know, at the end of the day, he, uh, you know, you've got this song and you, you got to, it's playing all over the. And although he wasn't the performer, he was the actual author of Hit Me With Your Best Shot. You know, yeah. and and you know, I know he made a little more than this, but the reality is that you know, here I was, I was able to afford a pizza in, yeah, in reality. Yeah, and so PRO for our listeners is performing royalty, the rights organization. Yeah, that used to so be, a, like, used to be, a, used to be a society. Right, it was BMI or SoCan or, or uh, whatever, well, it was right? KPAC originally, the Canadian KPAC, authors okay. publishers. Right, okay, uh, back yeah. up until uh, eighty nine. Yeah, yeah, so, so the royalties and stuff. Yeah, no, I just wanted to let people know. So the royalties, I mean, are a joke now. Like it's, it's there's almost nothing. But so that's part of the question that I like to ask and get your take yes. on it is how much of what you did or what we could do as a function of the time because you know you talked about splicing tapes and you talked about you know getting you used to be able to sell albums and stuff. Yeah, the record companies were gatekeepers, and I had one mm -hmm. friend who you know they owed so much money they needed to sell five hundred thousand albums to break even. <laughs> they, sold, they sold fifty. And so mm -hmm. they were 10% of what they needed for their recoupable money to be paid and to make money. You know, the, the, the landscape is shifting so quickly. Like you said, there's so much a saturation of music coming up and the landscape is shifting. So a lot of stuff that we did was a function of the time. What do you, what do you see as far as that goes and as far as the future goes? I, I think the biggest danger for creators is um, that they want to be uh, recognized as opposed right. to paid. 
So by the time they finished recording the track, it could be a fantastic track. And and this is a hit. I believe in this one. This is the one that's going to do it. They don't know how, uh, the majority of them, I would say, um, based on the top tier of, of uh, the PRO here in Canada, uh, which represents about 2%, that um, they don't know how to do the administration. So for every hour of, of finished product, you should be doing 100 hours of administration work and making sure okay. that you fill out your registrations properly and also recognize, I have to say this, publicly on on here and i'm glad glad to have the opportunity unfortunately canada does not have what i would call a, a reasonable man's um reliable copyright okay uh cpo in which is uh headquartered in in quebec charges 50 dollars for your for you to register but they uh, do not want you to register a title or the duration or the name of the song, or the BPMs, the beats per minute of it, yeah. or the key signature, or the lyrics, or anything. Well, so at the end of the day, after I've uh, as, as creators have paid their $50, they get a sheet of paper with some Maple Leafs on it, and your name on it, and a timestamp on it, but it points to nothing. So in the hmm. event that you identify with an infringement, either you know uh, domestically or internationally, you know, it amounts to absolutely nothing. Your Honor, uh, your, your Honor, here I am. I've, I've got this piece of paper here, and it says that I registered a song. And, and right. he or she looks at it and says, well, that's great, but now prove that it's yours. Well, if yeah, they right. don't take an audio sample at the gatekeeper, at the, what is our copyright of Canada, then what have I got to stand on? Absolutely nothing. So the reality is most of my clients i usher them why do we lose our brian adams or celine dion's and everyone else who's ever made it from canada first you know drake and everyone even even the weekend okay they had to be reappropriated by a kilometer music group Hmm. okay we lose all of our canadian creators to the states because through the Library of Congress, they have a functional copyright at, you know, that okay. you pay a little bit more. It's actually $65 US for it, but you had better not be misrepresenting anything on that copyright because there's also a fine associated with it of 2000 right. US dollars. So it makes you, you know, take a, a step back and make sure, am I telling the truth? Am I, am I representing properly? Am I doing this? Do I have contracts yeah. associated with this? So, I think that would be the, the first thing that we should look at is it's not just the, the musicians, the creator's fault. A lot of them have followed the talk off that for many years made people believe that, you know, that they were a copyright. People still say it today. Right. Although they don't profess it anymore and it's been taken off of their website, people still believe, well, is, well aren't they the, the ones who are, you know, I don't want to just, you know, talk them down, you know, but to be honest with you, there's a reason that KPAC went missing within right. the, the fabric of the music industry. And this new organization promised to be, you know, they were going to lead us into the promised land. And all they did was lead us into the same thing, you know. So they're, they've learned how through sub-publisher agreements and whatnot through the states to use the fact that Canada does not police its own intellectual properties, right? Right. And then they, they created a definition by once they, they license our music around the world, our, our music does a world tour, our royalties does a world tour, ends up back through Suiza in Switzerland, and then through other organizations there. They don't know how to correlate those royalties back to the creators, 
And what happens, okay. it gets sent back to ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. They yeah. don't know who it belongs to and who do they call on the very people that were not able to uh, protect Interesting, music yeah. in the first well, place. Make- it's a deep point, but it's an interesting and a good one because uh, years ago, somebody told me, well, we, we, I was asking about copyright. He said, well, when you write a song, it's automatically copywritten. I said, well, yeah, well, that doesn't mean anything. You have to prove it, don't you? Like, I'm like, well, I don't have to do nothing. And, and then there's the other one to talk of is the poor man's. Well, you still have to prove it, okay? Yeah. Well, but the difference is through the U.S., um, yeah. because if there's a copyright infringement and you manage to sway, you know, a court system here that it was in fact yours, you don't win worldwide just because you were able to sway Canada. Well, yeah, good luck okay. on that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You have to win in every part of the world that has its own PRO. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, 176 well, of them, I believe. Yeah, there you go. And then, well, you, you've been quite involved with the song, right? I mean, you've, you've actually, when you, when I look at your uh, dossier, you've got, you're involved in pretty much everything from mixing, mastering online, um, whatever artist development, but songwriting is an interesting focus. I've had, you know, Jim Valance and Mark Jordan and John Capek and Eddie Schwartz, Christopher Ward. I've had all those guys on and, mm. and I asked them the same question, you know, about, the saturation point and, and AI is going to be writing songs. I mean, I've talked to people that have had AI write or at least assist in writing songs. So yes. the saturation is, is, is there a limit to it? Like, is it going to be completely overwhelmed at some point? Hmm. If we do not um, take heed to the climate right now and change it around, like on just one of my songs online on Spotify has uh, 252,000 plays. And, and, you know, that would be, you know, approaching gold in Canada, you know, years yeah. ago, you yeah. know, but at 0.003 uh, cents per uh, play, um, you know, if we don't change the definitions that they changed back in uh, 2001 to make it based, uh, based on fair use by the CRB, um, that's what devalued us. And of course I, I make the argument as well that why would a, a gas station sell gas for less, you know, if they can sell it for this margin and this is their profit margin, what, what's the incentive for them? So, you know, Spotify, you know, they get the, the, the minimum that they can, and th- that's what they, uh, they, that's what they pay. So who sets that rate? Is it arbitrary or is it, there's some calculation or formula? What's the metric they use to come up with that figure? You can blame it all on the CRB which is copyright board. So you of, think that of both Canada haven't... and USA, they, uh, formerly it was uh, Giles McDougall, who was the, um, the, the, you had to be a, a former judge to be on the CRB. Okay. I have a level headedness about you. And I have to question that because if Giles had uh, children that were in the music industry, I asked, you know, would he actually determine that uh, for, for any of his <laughs> children? You know what I mean? <clears throat> because I'd I make it I, personal I would, and he probably wouldn't, right? <laughs> exactly. So let's get another sober judge uh, on the yeah. panel there. Cause I certainly wouldn't, you know, um, ABCO, ABCKO, uh, Alan Klein out of uh, New York, at least back when he was representing the Beatles, you might've heard of them. Um, yes. they, they, they used to make between five and 13 cents a play on, on the okay. internet. So through that term fair use, when everybody's blaming Spotify and any of the, you know, the, the online um, social media sites and whatnot, it's not their fault. They've been given that as a bottom line of what they have to pay. It's up to them. Like there is discrepancy because if you go to Tidal or, or Apple, they play a lot or pay rather a lot more 
a lot more, right? Nominally more, <laughs> but they get yeah. to set that rate. So what I believe we need to do is uh, first of all make a functional copyright for Canadians in Canada that is recognized on our own turf. And once it's determined that we have a copyright here that we can rely on faithfully, then then go forward and say, this is what we present to the world. I also believe that it is the responsibility of our government, considering that the broadcast industry makes over $100 billion a year here in Canada, that we put a gatekeeper. My talk off responsibility to them, uh, response rather to them is look at, if you can protect the binary, which is the zeros and ones, the ons and offs related to the securities of the financial transactions that occur online, mostly minus the hackers, of course, if you can look after the, the binary associated with a financial transaction, then why are you not able to look after the binary associated with my intellectual properties? And I ask that of, of our own house here of the, you know, uh, science and, and technology and commerce and, yeah. and ask them, you know, okay, so why have you politically turned your back on the responsibility of making sure? So it's my suggestion, AI wise, we need to have a functional copyright in Canada that protects us. And part of that is for being able to put a gatekeeper onto Bell, Rogers, Telus, Kojiko, et cetera. So, yeah. So obviously you're, you're into the legal part of it, which is great. And you got that mind for that. So would that mean mm-hmm. just from the outside looking in, would that mean putting some kind of digital tracking device or some kind of a digital code in each song so that they were specifically able to be recognized and understood in that way and then subject to that law? Absolutely. It should be okay. policed just like any other commodity in, in Canada. And it's the responsibility of those houses that and within the Senate that I, that I've, I've stated in, and, and in the comments okay. that I've stated yep. that are, it's their responsibility to make sure that as Canadians, we're able to make, you know, fair commerce for us. They're, yep. they're the ones with the deep pockets. They're the ones that are actualizing the profits from us. And, and they make no apology about it, especially in that, that again, that non-profit definition versus a not for profit. If you okay. look up Webster's dictionary, so you go and inform yourself the nonprofit can make whatever they want, you know, sit on a board there. And just before they go to pay you, they can say, you know what? Uh, we got to pay for the uh, the lights that we bought and the party hats and the pizza and the limos that we got. Um, we're going to have to get that from somewhere. So we'll take it off. Of, okay, we'll just move the funds. Lots of promises yeah. go on, lots of backroom uh, handshaking and partying yes. and whatnot on our royalties. And, huh. and I'm part of Indeed. I don't know if you know Indeed, you know, where you can no. uh, f- have job notifications and whatnot. I would say I get two to three from the PRO every week. Okay. Looking for people to hire, you mean? Yes. And they yeah. pay handsomely well, and they make sure that you ha- have access to their health club and yeah. dental and holidays and everything. Well, Where's all those royalties coming from? From us, they make acquisitions yeah, yeah. for for companies right. in the U.S. MediaNet, wow. for instance, and then so, when I get cl- when I get close to holding them accountable for those purchases, what do you think they do? You tell me. They sell them. Oh well, there you go. Well, it sounds Audium. like you've yeah you've been right involved in this and trying to track what's going on. And of course, I mean the, the artist is typically at the bottom of the food chain, anyways. I mean, isn't that the way it works? The suits wreck the music business, is the old saying. Well, my model for my company is that, I don't know if you've heard of the 360. 
That's a, a, a record, record deal, company. basically. Yeah, the universe. Yeah. They have, it's, yeah, they own the universe. Word. They own everything around <laughs> you. Your image, your voice, yeah. your likeness, yeah. your In the known universe, okay? yes. That's your right. children, you know, they yeah. own everything, yeah. okay? So <laughs> I said my model. I said, what is my good my, my model when I when I go, okay, I want to help people, okay? So I, my model is I want to flip that around. I've done, I say I've done a 180 on the 360. Okay, cool. I want to make sure that the artist's are getting informed and built up from from the ground up with their brand and that yep. they're informed yes. and I give them knowledge so that they're empowered because that knowledge that I give them is power. So they don't go out there and yeah. they're just like deer in the headlights. Right. You know, yeah. so that is my model. I want to help people get paid. And I do, I honestly do help people get paid. You can yeah. ask uh, a band uh, that I worked with, you, you shout out to uh Eric Labasi and the guys there and, and uh, private yeah. ear recording, you know, yeah. JP, yeah. do you know Hello Fasco? I don't know. No, oh, look them up. They're doing yeah. very well. They're over 5 okay. million plays now. I helped them migrate, okay, from Canada, the catalog, for yeah. a very good reason. Um, because if you want to get paid, unfortunately, and, and, the, and, and it pains me, actually, you know, yeah. Dan, to say this. I'm proud of, of our country. I love my country, Canada. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm a patriot, a loyalist to, to Canada, of course. But I'm also, at the end of the day, having to, to put food on the table from, from you know, the time that I spend on what it is that I believe in. Yeah. And I can't, I can't honestly say that Canada provides that for me. I don't know right. how many can. It's, huh. it's, not, um, it's not fair. In the fair use model and what right. they have uh, provided for us, the provisio of it, it's, it's not fair to us. So, so what's the remedy to that? Well, first of all, a, a, a copyright that is, copyright, is actually yeah. a copyright. Yeah. And secondly, I believe a gatekeeper that actually counts properly. Yeah. And also with the, the I can say this with, with, it, with regards to in tandem, you know, in tandem was put in place so that it would, it would um, attract and, and, you know, charge restaurants and any businesses that would allow <clears throat> for performance of music and where we add value. Well, my, my, my question to them was, well, what mechanism have you got in place to track what's being played so we know who to pay? Well, SoCan does SoCan fees. Like if you have a restaurant and you're running music in there, you have to pay SoCan fees. Right? Well, what the SoCan bar, did bar. was they, they, uh, they um, indemnified themselves from that responsibility um, directly and made another company called Intandem. Okay. I got you. Okay. So Intandem is what's actually responsible for that. Um, but again... Try and recuperate. Uh, I heard my song playing in, in uh, a bank specifically. Let's say yeah. here. And it's my responsibility to notify in tandem and SoCam that, that I heard my song. Well, try and get your money out of them for that. Try and get your yeah. money out of eight and a half months, nine months, 10 months later, or not at all. Right. Um, doesn't happen. I have, you know, model to respond to their inefficiencies. Okay, if AI yeah. is here, let's deploy AI. Let's utilize yeah. AI because I'm, I'm sorry if I offend somebody, but this is the reality. Let's use AI to be the bean counters because no longer can we allow 10 to 1 ratio, 100 to 1 ratio, 1,000 to 1 ratio be the, the model that we allow them to run away with the, the golden spoon anymore well, I, yeah and i wondered about that because they they don't track you're right they don't track the actual song plays most of the people that make money from socan are the are the big boys right they everybody else is getting table scraps and there's no direct tracking of what's actually played even if you don't register your music 
properly, right? And it becomes by definition what is called orphaned, right? right? Because the yeah. parent, the creator is separated from the child, the song. Then if that's what happens, then in what they call the three-year rule, if you do not collect those royalties, guess who takes them? They just reverts back to the collect the people who collected them. And then eventually they take their portion that they want to, and then they give it out again to the big three and they get yeah. to disperse yeah. it. So there this is go. the reason why in the States, if you look up on Billboard magazine, how much money is in the black box? Yeah. Okay. From orphan royalties. That's why the Senate there uh, in, in uh, 2021, in January 1st, uh, came out with the uh, MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Its yeah. job and mandate with a $63 million um, budget, startup budget. How'd you like to have a startup budget like that? Well, yeah, that'll right? pay the rent for a few what months. We want you, what, what, <laughs> yeah, right. What we want you to do is we want you to find the creators who wrote this music because we can't correlate who owns this money to the right people. We need to get rid of this because this money is a problem for us. And how much so are we talking? It, how much is sitting in there? Billion, two point five billion. Oh wow! There you go. And it keeps growing exponentially. So these, <clears throat> the the board there. Uh, I, I'm sorry to pick on people, but I know obviously I know the facts and figures. Yeah. You can fact check them yourself. You can go to the MLC and see what the problem is there. Um, they can't allocate, they can't find the right people. So what are they doing? They're rewarding themselves by paying some, the administrators, the board members there, you know, $1.7 okay. million dollars a year for being management and whatnot. Wow. They're, you know, so we got to get rid of this money. This money is a problem. And well, well, instead just, of making a model right from the get-go, every DAW that we purchase from Lunar, from the UAD, the Apollos, you know, um, yeah. Right through through to Pro Tools and Logic and uh, Cubase, all the DOS should all be equipped with a license um, creator, right on it mm. that does okay. uh, a UPC EAN number. You know how when you buy right. a pencil at Walmart, it has a yeah. a, a code on it. So everything yeah. should have a code on it, and it should have an ISWC code. Everyone yeah. knows what the ISWC code is. And everyone knows what the ISRC code is, right? You've, those are digital codes for songs, right? I just had to fill they those out myself. But yeah. which, what, what do they employ? If, if we're talking about the ISWC, it, that is the international standard. Remember the ISO when the ISO came? Yeah, no, you're so, way so more versed in that stuff. Yeah, business businesses have to be ISO compliant. Okay, so the IS is also it's European mostly uh, because CSAC is in France. Okay, that's where that's the head of all the PROs in the world. So the ISWC is the International Standard Work Code, and that is what allows them to collect our performance royalties. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But the yeah. ISRC code, the International Standard Recording Code, that is related to the mechanical royalties, the actual sales. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So and and the 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 UPC EAN is what the identifier is of the physical. Okay, so if we do a, a CD or, you know, whatnot, but but the, the actual download is a physical sale because once it leaves them and ends up on your computer, that is a physical sale. I got okay? you. Okay. The yeah. unfortunate part about this, and if I may, is that if I own one phone and one computer and I play um, a song, okay, online, that song is counted forevermore, no matter how many times you play it, as one sale. Oh, okay. Yeah. One play. There you go. Yeah. How fair that's, is that? 
Yeah. So that again is another problem yeah. within within our industry is the is the actual counter. So when we yeah. put that gatekeeper on with Bell Rogers Coach Co, uh, tell us AT and T and British Telecom and you know all of them around the world, then we know because they know when there's transactions going on. They know they can see easily. It's, it's all tracked. Everything we do is tracked. Well, that's a you good know? point because it, it, to say that they can't track it is really a false argument because if they wanted to and there was a digital identifier in there, they would be tracked automatically. And like you said, you can get AI to help. Well, we got a little bit into the weeds here with the legal stuff, but I do appreciate it because you're well-versed in that. And, and it's it's an important part of the industry, maybe for, for people who are listening, who are um, just music aficionados or people who are interested in the music part of it. The business part of it is important to all of us who create music and and you certainly are well versed in that, so I, I do appreciate you sharing a lot of the knowledge that Thank you, you so much. that you brought out. Yeah, so so let me switch gears. I just want to ask you yes, as, we, as we finish up here. I just want to yes, ask sir. you about a few of your songs. You know that I listened to some okay. of your, uh, <laughs> stuff that you recorded, and uh, yes, and and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. The Human Skin by the Three Kin uh, Three Kings that you recorded the COVID the Kings. Song. Yeah. Oh yeah. So uh, <laughs> again, remember I talked about Jeff Salem, uh, the drummer that I worked with. Uh, well, yeah. Mike Alonzo is. Um, playing with uh, Jeff um, Salem as well in the uh, in the, the band that uh, tributes to um, uh, the Eagles. Okay. Here in Canada that, that, that yeah. uh, flies all over and whatnot. They're doing very well. So uh, Mike, myself, and Sean Marriott, we all, we all grew up together in yeah. high school. We've been best friends um, since we were 13 years old. Before my home burned down in 2017. Oh, geez. Sorry um, to hear about that. Yeah, I, oh. I when I say my home, it was really my studio with a washroom and a bedroom oh. in it. <laughs> wow, <laughs> you Jeez, know, man, that's I, uh, my I, worst nightmare. Oh, you mean uh, yeah. the the burning of it? Yeah, yeah, the burning it, of it. it was yeah. it was uh, it was it was not my uh, most favored yeah. moment. But huh. anyways, um, I had a rehearsal studio uh, down in, in the basement, large enough to have a full band and PA and whatnot. And so I invited the guys over and, and we were having some fun. We know each other so so well intimately as friends and musically that if we walked on to stage, you know, main stage A, you know, we literally could create live there wow. in front of people. Yeah. Okay, very cool. And that's what we do. We, we force ourselves. We just jam and bing, you know, this comes out. So, but I, um, I do what a lot of people don't do. And, you know, my, one of my favorite producers, Canadian Daniel Lemoyne, uh, lives by this rule. He always has a couple mics up in the air and he's always tracking either on a, you know, a computer or on a DAT or on a radar system or whatever, but he's yeah. always recording absolutely everything. Why? Mm. Because magic happens right and i don't know if you've ever been at your instrument and you're you're just coming up with an idea and you're like wow that was so great i wish i recorded that yeah. and then you go okay i'm gonna go and get the mic and i'm gonna set this up and i'm gonna get press record and as soon as you change the mood and you you know put the mic in place and you press record and you sit back down you go what did i do how did it go yeah that's you a know? good point yeah for sure so no, always you got to capture the magic when it's happening Sure. That's right. That's yeah. the magic of the moment. So I discipline myself that, you know, the, the recording is is always on. The red light is always. I actually have a T-shirt that says I'm always recording. So yeah. uh, we literally came up. I mean, and I have to, uh, you know, give credit where credit is due. Mike uh, is a, an absolute brilliant musician all around as well. 
Um, so is Sean Mira, and uh, you know, I, I guess I've fallen into that category somewhat as well. Um, but uh, the guy has so much soul vocally as well. I mean, he literally wrote the, the lyrics live, the guitar oh, cool. parts live, the yep. drums live, myself on bass live, and then I just you know a post of that event engineered, and it happened to be um, during um, COVID. You know when yeah. we uh, realized uh, the magic that we had, and I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. I think this is good enough to let's release it no it's cool so that it's, is, i mean it's yeah it's live off the floor it's it's a bit raw but it's cool it's got the vibe right exactly and so. and i mean if you look at a lot of the producers that you know uh say junk house worked with and uh you know emmy lou harris and william you know i know that daniel's like this as well i i adopted some of, of these uh, choices yeah. is that Okay, you've come into the studio and you want to do this song and that song and what's up. But even even Mutt Lang, you know, when Def Leppard was in in the studio and they were doing Hysteria, you know, one of the biggest songs that came out was the very last one when they thought they were done the album. Um, um, Pour some sugar on me. You okay, know? yeah, they were already done the album. They'd spend fifteen million pounds recording the thing yeah. twice. Yeah, right. <laughs> And here they are. And that song was the magic. That was the, hey, we just came up with this song. I'm getting Huge tingles hit. right now yeah. talking about, yeah, you know, sure. hey, we got this song. They pulled Mutt into the, they were like, oh, and he says, that has to go on the album. That's yeah. the song. There you go. Right? Yeah. yeah. So oh, cool. Well, that's, I, I did listen to it and I got that vibe from it. And then, and then you recorded I Cry with Dana Keith, right? And that's again, another again. just raw, just beautiful. Like, and that, that's what beats AI. I think, you know, circling back to that because yes, that she's got this beautiful, rich female, sultry, oh. make you fall in love with her from her voice voice. If I can say that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, uh, you know, we always wake up in the middle of the night and we got to take our phone with us to the washroom just in case we miss a very important <laughs> yeah. comment or phone call at 3 a.m., you know? Yeah, check right? your Facebook updates with one eye open. <laughs> right? Swear to you, I'm literally on, on the throne and I get this message. Hi, Dean. It's Dana. I just want to let you know I follow everything that you're doing. I just want to let you know I support everything you're doing. I just want to let you know uh, if you ever want to get together, I'd, I'd love to do a track with you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I contacted her right back right at that point. She's contacted me. I contacted her back. We agreed to meet the next day. And uh, she came to the, the studio. And uh, I, I had a, I remember which mic I had out, but it was a tube mic that I had out. Yeah. And uh, I had it set up with a UAD a compressor and whatnot, isolated and, you know, headphones ready to rock. And at about three o'clock in the morning after I'd been transferring songs, you know, for her to, to hear, because I got a new Pro Tools rig and I wasn't able to drag and drop into Pro Tools, you know, I had okay. to do it in live. So I was just playing one at a time. And when I got to this song that I'd worked on for six months, you know, she said, what's that? And I said, oh, it's a track I've been working on and just playing it for her and she said roll it back and uh, press record so i did and she literally wrote that melody and those lyrics yeah and performed that one time vocal wow. on that moment and that is well, that song was, uh, yeah i know it's, it's gorgeous I, I i recommend people listen to it so where can people go to hear these songs you've got your vivo channel right you've got a youtube 
Um, I've got the, the YouTube channel. I've got uh, the Vivo channel on, under my name as, as well. And, and there's many Hages. artists that I produce as well. Yep. Uh, yeah, Dean Ages. And yep. there's many artists that like, like what I do when I sign them with my, my label. That's the other thing I'd like to, to just state as well. Yeah, when please. people work with me, I don't sign the artist to my label. I don't want them feeling like they owe me forever. I looked at that model right. and I said, why do I want to restrict them? You know, when you look at baseball players and football players and whatnot these guys are mostly free agents you know right up until you know the playoffs are done already or they can be traded mid you know mid-season some of them yeah they, they do they literally get traded yeah. so hmm. what i do my model is that i sign the song and the artist to the label and if you're happy with the way it's going great if not see you later but if you want to do another track we'll do another track together you know so spotify of course with with my name uh one of my my bigger tracks right now is um she belongs to the night yeah that's sort of a world beat what is that what do you there's some rap in there it's kind of a world beat thing and it's it is there's a lot a lot a lot going on in that and and i also released it in uh spanish with oh, nice. uh, an artist, Lucina Monroy, that I did a full production. If you look up Lucina Monroy, uh, the song is called Ella Es La Noche. Oh, okay. Man. And uh, okay. that spent, um, I think, five weeks at the top of the charts down there on 25 FM radio stations. And as a result of that track, she's now an ambassador for Mexico, U.S., and Canada. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think not just cool. the track. I mean, her yeah. personality and you know her character and whatnot, course, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. you know, th- this this is co- correlates uh, with what was going on in her life, timing wise. You yeah. know, and and many other artists that have worked with the label as well. So um, there's a lot more than just myself. Those are my songs that you see when you when you go on there. But I would like to close with this. Yeah, I also wrote a track. Uh, that has been uh, infringed majorly uh, within the world and the industry. It has to do with the the PROs. Uh, I, I shared some of the video footage of that that we captured, yeah. and that is is uh, through SoCan with uh, uh, Britney Spears. Um, it was Slave for You, and okay. you know the embellishment of of that track when it, when it happened. Um, I was in England uh, uh, again during two thousand and one during the nine one one event. And yeah. I took uh, about 74 songs with me over there because I have a son with that woman that uh, I met in Barbados. Right. And I went to university there. Back then, we had to solicit songs, which meant you had to ask permission. You didn't just show up at a record label and say, here's my song, play it, you know? Right. Although that's the, that's the dream, you know, it does yeah. happen. But uh, in my case, I called ahead to, to Virgin and HHO Publishing, which was a Lord Henry Hathaway, who wrote a famous song, The Bird Dance. Da, da, okay. da, 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 da. Right? He built an empire on that one song. Wow. (laughs) And the last one was uh, Zomba. Uh, Zomba Records. Do you know who Zomba is? I don't. It's Mutt Lang. Oh, okay. Okay. And Abbey Road as well is where I went. So all all those places are within walking distance of each other. So I thought I'll go and have meetings with all of them. Well, doesn't my song come out in 2001, but I didn't recognize it in 2001 because they had stripped the majority of the melodic instruments from it. I didn't recognize it then. There was nothing to tell me that that was uh, related to me at all. But Mm. four years later, when Dave Odd got a hold of it as a result of uh, when Mutt Lang merged in 2001 with Sony, BMG, um, and moved his head office from England to New York, 
He sent the audio stems, obviously, to Dave Odd at Audacious. Uh, Audacious didn't even exist when Dave Odd got the stems. It was just Dave Odd at that time. Everything he touches turns to gold uh, as far as his remixes. They sent him my my audio stems that had been uh, reverse engineered. And even Pharrell Williams uh, states this in an interview with uh, Rick Rubin. So he he admits after the, the, the copyright infringement that he reverse engineers publicly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I left some some secrets in my track that I never told any about anybody about, um, and I'm willing to at some point, not today. Yeah. They're they're telling, you know, the secrets of of what's within the in the in the track, and it's none of their business at this point until somebody challenges it. At, to this date, not Sony, not Universal, not Soken. Nobody has said, Dean, you're out of your mind. Right. Well, they have said so, that. No, so they lifted. <laughs> no. So you're saying they lifted? They lifted your tracks and used them for Britney Spears? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, one trillion percent. Okay, one hundred percent. And yeah. and and so much so they embellish the story. They tell the story that, that they wrote it for Janet Jackson. Capital oh. BS. Never the original track that I wrote was uh, intended for Diana Ross, right. and uh, mm. I called it. Um, higher you take me in the registration. And I had this feeling in, in my guttural that what if somebody got a hold of this? So the actual chorus is you take me higher, you take me higher. And uh, they got a hold of it and the, mel- the melody and whatnot and the arrangement. Now, yeah. when I got the letter from Bruce Cavuzzo, head of EMI Publishing, he says, wait a second, uh, Eric Levine, uh, the, the lawyer for, for uh, Zomba Records in New York, you know, he points fingers at Bruce Cavuzzo at EMI, and and Bruce Cavuzzo says, uh, "Hey, hang on a second. We didn't commission this mix. That came from Zomba. If if anybody mm-hmm. has anything to do with this, you commissioned it. So good luck, Dean Hages. And because you you CC'd him on this letter, I'm going to CC him yeah. back on this letter to you. Okay, right. So yeah. that's the pretty much the top of the music industry at that point." Um, pointing hmm. fingers back at itself, yeah, you know. And what do they do? They they skate, and it involves the PRO here. It involves a lot of the, the the people here. But I took what he said in that letter was that it had nothing. The 2005 mix had nothing to do with the 2001. Well, a lot of her super fans said that the 2005 mix that was released sounds like a chipmunk because they didn't hmm. have the technology back then. Remember okay. Alvin and the Chipmunks? They yeah, just sped course, up the yeah. tape, right? Yeah. Right. So, Same yeah. thing. They sped okay. her vocal up to match the timbre of the tempo with Dave oh. Odd because they didn't have the isotopes oh. and whatnot that we have now. So and yeah, they 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 took the vocal right from 2001 and put it over top of the new melody on 2005. There was no melody in the mm-hmm. 2001. So where did the melody come from? Dave Odd did not get credit for the writing it. If you look on Spotify, the Slave Driver remix. There's no. no credit for who actually wrote it, except huh. for Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo taking credit for it. But the head of EMI Publishing says it has nothing to do with Pharrell Williams, Chad so, Hugo, or the Neptunes. So where does that, just as we finish up, though, where does that sit now? Is it in litigation? Well, here's here's the reality of it. Brittany, uh, everyone saw the world witnessed when uh, she lost her, her yeah. everything. She lost her kids, her yeah. Her, her husband, Kevin Federline at the time, and she, yeah. they had her on so many drugs, you know, she lost everything. Yeah, it was sad, but sad situation. Yeah. Very sad. And, yeah. you know, uh, her own family took advantage of it through, through you know, the, the um, 
the conservatorship that they put over her, of course, which she ended up fighting and fighting and fighting. Yeah. And oh, although she was that, making yeah. making millions and millions of dollars in Vegas and all the shows she did all the way out of the world, yeah. playing what? Slave for you, right? All over the world. Um, we've kind of had like this parallel going on. Um, just after I got called from your show, I got called from the U.S., there's a film company that wants to do a follow-up to the um, documentary that was released on Netflix, um, Britney versus Spears. So I'm going to be able to lay out the totality of all of, including the source audio. I don't know right. if you're familiar okay. with that term. Yeah. Um, what I wrote the track on, which was a Kurt 12 K2000S sampling keyboard. Right. And okay. uh, exactly the, the, the entire story of it and how it fell into her. I don't think she was aware of it at the time. I've seen suitcases of songs that have been dropped off for her when they're shopping for songs. Yeah. yeah. So the bottom line, it's still up in the air then, right? It's still unresolved. Uh, yeah. It's un unresolved okay. as far okay. as I attempted here in Canada mm -hmm. to take on Sony and, and SoCan yeah. and Universal. And, but I, I yeah. did my best on my own without having the deep pockets to hire, you know, copyright litigants. Well, that's right. That's right. It's a good point because you end up spending way more than you'd ever get back in, in the, in a sort of a hamster wheel of a process. But if you ask yeah. Dave Odd of Audacious, if he yeah. knows who Dean Hages is, <laughs> if you ask, if you ask any of the people in, in the music industry as a result of what's yeah. happened, if they know who Dean Hages is, yeah. you're bloody right they do. Okay, so did right. I get justice? Yeah. I would say so far it's poetic, and also in closing, Captain Karma is never far away. You know. Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, thank, thanks for sharing all that. I mean, it, this has been a pretty deep conversation, but lots of information and lots of cool stuff. And you're obviously well-versed and well-spoken. So you laid it out there. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. I, I appreciate uh, also, and uh, honestly, the opportunity to, to, to share uh, some, uh, and I hope that it's it's inspired people to take a, a better, harder look and, and do, do some fact-checking. You know, don't yeah. just listen to my words. You go right. and look up, you can, you can rewind it and you say, what did you say there? And you go rewind <laughs> it and fact check it for yourself and see Fair how enough. close I am because yeah. I have that memory. Many thanks to my guest, Dean Hages, for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his many musical adventures and accomplishments. More information is available at iStreamGuru.com. And uh, of course, on Facebook, he's active on there as well, Dean Hages. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.